1: This is The Secret Library Podcast. I'm Caroline Donahue. As a lifelong book lover, I've been hanging out with books as long as I can remember. Here on the show, we're going inside the world of books and learning what's involved in going from brilliant idea to finished manuscript, and what it takes to get it out in the world. You'll hear from authors, publishers, editors, and all kinds of professionals whose work brings you what you read every day. Welcome back to the Secret Library podcast, and I'm really excited to have as my guest today, Tosh Berman. And Tosh is another one that we uh, we had a podcast together where we talked about books, but we could never remember uh, the name of the book we were talking about. So it was kind of a mixed bag.
0: We were kicked off.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were.
0: They pulled the plug on us.
1: Yeah, they did. Although I do think we had a fairly good following in Japan, didn't we?
0: Uh uh only in only, only in Kobe, only in Kobe.
1: <laughs> we're really big in Kobe.
0: Kobe and, and uh, Osaka, not Tokyo for some reason.
1: No, they didn't want us in Tokyo. Yeah, huge in Kobe. <laughs> no, so, but it, but
0: uh, Kobe and Osaka were did we did good.
1: Yeah, we did really well. So Tosh was the book buyer mm-hmm. at Book Soup, so we can talk about book markets and then he also runs the independent press Tamtown Books. Which specializes in quote unquote this. I'm quoting the uh, LA Times article lost 20th century writers, such as the French novelist Boris Vian. And then he also has a book out. He is an author and has written the book Sparks Tastic 21 Nights with Sparks in London. And then he also has a poetry book, which I am informed just recently yes. got republished. So you're spanning all genres. You've got nonfiction. We got fiction. We got poetry. Yes. It's amazing.
0: Yes, we, I'm, I'm spreading my, myself like everywhere. I'm like I'm like I'm like melted butter on a hot, hot piece of toast. <laughs> you just put a knife through me, and you take that. You take me out of that jar or out of that plastic container, and put me in a hot piece of toast, and I just melt on that toast.
1: That's amazing. It's literary literary toast. You're the you're the butter to, to uh, literature's toast.
0: I'm just butterly ready for anything with butter.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm better. I'm better with butter.
1: Everything is though.
0: Everything's better with butter.
1: I have everything. I can't think of a single thing that's not better with butter.
0: Oh, mm, Wow, well, you're probably right about that.
1: I don't know. If you think of something, you just shout it out at any point during the show. I'm are you like
0: it. Are, are you a butter expert? I mean, are you a butter? I, think, um,
1: I would say I'm more of an enthusiast.
0: You're you get excited about butter.
1: Yeah, I'm enthusiastic about butter. I enjoy using it, consuming it, cooking with it, all of those things. Yeah.
0: So, do you like the cubicle you know, block of butter, or do you like sort of like margarine type of butter, like soft butter in a in a uh, in a plastic container?
1: I don't really like the plastic container. I... So you like
0: the you like the, the hard butter you get in the dairy section that's just like a block of butter, correct? And you yeah. take a knife. Yep. and you slice it off and you put it in your frying pan or or, or a toast or whatever. Correct? Yeah,
1: for cooking, totally. <clears throat> but I do like those butter bells, you know, where you can put the you can squish the uh, block into it, mm-hmm. and then it, you know, it does soften up quite a bit. And then it's a little bit more like European butter, you know, where it's yes. kind of at room temperature and it's really easy to use. I love. Yes, that.
0: I unfortunately I, I really can't eat butter anymore. Oh no. Yeah, due, due to diet considerations.
1: Well, we should probably stop talking about it then. It's gonna no, I, so I,
0: good. I I actually enjoy you talking about butter. Great.
1: <laughs> this is a major literary topic. I'm really glad that it's uh, that we're covering it so thoroughly.
0: Uh, I have I have a great memories of butter, and my experiences with butter have always been positive and good.
1: Yeah, I think I mean you can't really go wrong. But it's true there are a lot of people out there where they're not really supposed to have it. It doesn't work out
0: they can't resist it
1: i know it's hard isn't it it Um, is very hard but i so i don't know there's so many things i want to talk to you about and that i was excited about having you on for one of the things Mm -hmm. i guess was i don't know if i've ever heard this story or at least maybe my memory is now bad but of how you found boris Vian and decided you wanted to translate his work i'm really curious about that
0: well i never heard of boris Vian. Till I was in Japan, Tokyo, to be specific, uh, this is about twenty-five years ago now, and um, and I was writing short stories at the time. Um, there were sort of surreal narratives, and uh, my wife Luna Meno started reading them, and she told me, "You know, your work is very much like Boris Vian."
1: <laughs>
0: and I went, "Really? Well, who is you know?" I, I knew the name Boris Vian because. You know, Boris Vian is not only a novelist and a writer, he's also a musician, a jazz musician, and a songwriter. So when I first heard the name Boris Vian, I sort of connected him to French jazz musician, and that's it. I didn't know anything beyond the fact that he's a jazz French musician, a French jazz musician. So, so, when I said, no, 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 he wrote a lot of books, a lot of, a lot of books. So, you know, all the books... At the time, and still is the case, were are uh, translating in Japanese. So he's very, you know, he's a popular French writer in, in Japan, like Jean Paul Sartre or you oh, know, Albert wow. Camus. Boris Vian is in that same league. So, um, you know, I went to a bookstore, and there's like a like a whole wall of Boris Vian books, know, in Japanese. So I got, I was really intrigued about this, and then I sort of did my own little research on him, and and um, I just. I just really, really strongly identify with him, you know, and I never wanted to be a publisher at the time, but it's, it's, you know, this is what I'm like, and this is including book buying, book soup. I love show and tell. As a kid, as a child in kindergarten or first grade, Uh when you bring something at home to show to your class why you love that particular object, it could be a book, a record, human being, whatever. You just want to show and express that love of that object or that something to somebody else. So, so buying books for book soup exactly the same thing and publishing exactly the same thing. I just all I want to do, it's very simple, is present something, show something to somebody else, therefore the public or even friends. So I became totally fascinated with Boris Vian's world and his life and um, I just said, you know, I'm just going to show him like a show and tell I'm going to publish his books in America and in English and get them translated from French to English. And I have been doing that for like over 20 years. So that has, it's it's set up to be a business but I never really made money out of it. So it's sort of more of a a hobby. Right. And so my hobby has been translating for not me personally, but finding a translator to work on translations of Boris Vian into English, and then I put the books out, and they got some attention, and um, and it, it all became good towards the end.
1: So, how much of Boris Vian's? Because you've done what, four or five at this point?
0: I think I think actually more. I mean, I mean, let me do a mental count. One, two. I did probably about eight Boris Vian books.
1: And how many? Me- what percentage is that? <coughs> excuse me, of his total. It sounds like if there's a uh, whole wall of it, that there's a yeah, lot of there, material. Yeah, there's
0: a lot. I did all his major works, like his major novels. But he also wrote a lot of essays. He did jazz criticism. That's great. He did plays, oh, wow. uh, uh, song lyric books, um, essays. And I did not publish those. I basically focus on his main major sort of masterpieces, quote-unquote, his masterpieces, so I didn't do any of the sort of the essays of Boris Fionn. This, this is novels.
1: Yeah, it's they're really good. I really like that Dead All Have the Same Skin. It's it's really yeah, it's noir great. and dark. and they He has great titles.
0: Yeah, um, Dead All Have the Same Skin, uh, To I Hell see. with the Ugly.
1: <laughs> spit on Your Graves, yeah. I
0: spit on Your Graves, yeah. Nobody likes ugly people. Do you like ugly people?
1: I don't know. I mean, I don't really... Think about it in that way.
0: I say to hell with the ugly people. <laughs> <they don't> <laughs> yeah, that's you know, a, I, I don't want to get too philosophy. much into the surface of beauty, but you know, when you get down to it, the surface is sometimes much way more important than what's deep inside. How so? Because you see something, the presence, it's the theatrical aspect of of it all. The spectacle of it is actually more pleasing than when you actually start knowing somebody deeply. That's when the trouble starts.
1: <laughs> yeah. Then you learn things you don't want to know.
0: Well, I well wonder- no, not only you don't want to know, but you end up having to know because you spend a great deal with you know certain group of people and stuff. So yes, it's very dangerous. Avoid it.
1: Yeah. It uh, you learn things that contradict what you thought was true. Yes. Yes. Did you have that experience to change topics somewhat? When you were doing the book on Sparks and seeing all Mm -hmm. of those shows, how much contact did you have with the band?
0: I actually had, this is interesting, I had 100% contact with the band. I chose not to go that route. I wanted to write the book as a member of the audience seeing the band. God. And I wanted it to be more a reflection of me, more of a reflection of me than more than a band bio or interview with the band or talk with the band gear. Uh, that to this day, I'm very, you know, I'm a huge music fan, as you probably know. Yes. Um, and I'm obsessed with music, and but I, but my obsession with music is not really. I, mean, I love the details about their lives and the musician lives and what they did and the albums. But really, I'm more interested in how that music affected me personally. Mm. So, and why I like that band or that artist or author, you know, or it could be a you know, painter or whatever. So, writing the Sparks book, my Sparks book is basically my appreciation for that band in, in great depths. It's also a, uh, a travel journal of uh, London and Paris because I went to Paris first. Then I went to london and that and, and the majority of the book takes place in London because that's where I saw Sparks do twenty one shows and twenty one nights where each night they just focus on one of their albums from beginning to the end Wow, and it's very obsessive and it's very very- it's very eccentric and it's very obsessive and it's very um conceptual you know like a lot of bands will focus on their one hit album, you know, and they, they'll do a concert from beginning to end of that one hit album that everybody loves and everybody thinks it's classic, but Sparks did every one of their albums, even their most obscure works. They did a concert where their most obscure work from the beginning to the end, and um, so I went to all, all the shows in London. I saw every one, and I, and I went on the purpose to write a book, not to write a diary or a journal, but to actually make a book out of it, and that is what happened. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. I love that. And I did the people did they have it in mind that they were gonna do them in chronological order, or did they just decide, okay, we're doing this album today and we're ultimately gonna check them all off the list?
0: No, well they, they did it in chronicle uh, order as in time when the album was released. So you got the you know, you get the first album, the first night, second album, second mm-hmm. night, and you know and so forth. And it all led up to their latest album, which was was released uh, at the time of their concert, when they when they did a, a full concert of that album as well, so it's sort of like leaving. You know, you sort of like being taken on a ride their whole career, and seeing everything. You know, you're seeing the whole Sparks world in a matter of 21 days or 21 nights.
1: How many people do you think saw all 21 shows?
0: Uh, that's a good question. And, you know, there was me. I think I mean, altogether, probably. Not that many, probably like 20, we'll say, okay. 20 people.
1: And did it, you know, did it change dramatically from night to night? Like, oh, this album was maybe not as popular and so it's a much smaller show and then... Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes. But you also get more, like it could be a smaller show, but it's a more fanatical audience because they really love that album. <laughs> they're, they're totally obsessed with that record. No, their friends don't not like And it's like, it's kind of great. It's kind of like you're in this sort of environment where these people are so intensely in love with the music being played. It was, it was such an incredible experience, and um, uh, and strange enough, it wasn't that predictable. Even though Sparks did the same arrangements that are on their album, they did it live. You know, if they had a horn section on the album, they had it on stage with them for that particular album. So it's it's if you're not hearing anything new, but seeing them doing it live, you get like a different perspective. And you know, honestly, I don't love every Sparks album. Mm-hmm. There's like two or three Sparks albums I don't like. But seeing those albums I don't like live performed really opened my eyes to new things. Actually, you know, I didn't. It made me re-listen to the stuff I didn't like, and it made me appreciate them even more. It was, it was really a fantastic experience.
1: I think that does happen sometimes. I've seen things live that I didn't even know I was that into. Or I mm-hmm. saw Dolly Parton once at the Bowl, and I was like, well, of course you got to go see Dolly Parton, and but I didn't really love Dolly Parton. I just appreciated right. her. But after the show, I feel like I really love her as a result of seeing her live.
0: Well, that's, a, you know, that is the beauty of sometimes a live performance. We see, like, somebody, like, legendary or somebody kind of iconic, like, somebody like, you go, well, okay, she's iconic. I get it. Right. I'll go. She'll do her hits. You know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> then we see this person. It's like, wow, I get it. I now understand why. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes when you see a show like that, it's like it's really eye opener. You know, it's like wow, I get it now.
1: Exactly. You get so, zapped.
0: You get zapped, and you you understand what's happening.
1: I did, and it sounds like you got zapped on those albums. So now, do you like all of the albums? Yes.
0: Yeah. I, well, I pre. I, I always. You know, even the weak albums, I admired if I didn't like. But you know, but now I have a greater respect for the albums I didn't like, and um, um and um. And it's all dupe because I, you know, I went to the shows. You know, I went, I went to see that specific show, that specific album, and you know, and I had to be there and I'd see them perform it. And it was, it was a real eye opener or ear opening experience. It's great, mm-hmm. fantastic.
1: So, how did you go about transforming that experience into a book?
0: Well, this is the thing, you know. I knew they were going to do this series of shows, obviously, right. in London. And I thought, that is such an insane thing to do every album you made and do a live show of each album each night. I thought that was like crazy, insane, yeah. but genius at the same time. You know, I thought, okay. So um, I I had to go to Paris because uh, my dad, who was an artist, Wallace Berman, was in a, a really big group show at the Pompidou Center in Paris, and I had to go to the opening and uh, so I thought, okay, we're gonna be in Paris. That's right, Sparks gonna do the show. So I thought, wow. And I had no money at the time, you know, I had no money, and I thought, you know, I gotta go. I mean, I'll go see the first show, the right. first album. You know, just you know, just take that train, the tube train, you know, underneath the water, you know, get there, see the show, and then leave. No big deal, right? Right. And then I thought. Well, if I want to be for the first show, should I see the second album? Because the second one was really good. <laughs> yeah, it's just another night, right? So I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to do two nights. You know, I'm going to be flamboyant. I'm going to go for two nights. Yeah. But then the third album is "Kimono My House," which is sort of what every every Sparks fan feels is the masterpiece.
1: So you can't miss that.
0: Correct. So I went to bed thinking about this. And by, like, 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, like, bingo. And I said, I have to go to every show. It was <laughs> oh, this is fat. And I, not only that, I said, I'm going to write a book about this. It was, like, that clear. It's like, I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to go to every show. So, luckily enough, the good news is that I have two friends in London. And I can stay, like, you know, like, like the first half of the trip, I can stay with one. And the second half of the trip, I can stay with another friend. Uh, and then just go see the show. So it was very much like a job to me. It was like, it, it, like I wake up in the morning, have a banana for breakfast. London <laughs> is very expensive.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. I don't,
0: now it may not be as expensive because they left the EU, but the time, really expensive. So yeah. I really just, I just focus on a banana and a cup of coffee. And I start writing, you know, like a journal. Then I go, I leave like, low, like around 5 o'clock, I leave for the show in Islington, which is uh, North London. And I write about the whole area of North London and about Charles Dickens and, you know, all this other London culture stuff, Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and, and then um, and then I see the show, and then I come home, or to my place I'm staying, and I work till, like, midnight or 1 o'clock, just writing. And then the next day I wake up and, you know, have a banana and coffee. <laughs> I'll, have, I'll, I'll have dinner before the show.
1: I was like, did you eat anything other than the banana? That's what I'm concerned yeah,
0: about. Yeah, because I know you're into this food thing, right? You're still <laughs> I, I, ate, I ate at a restaurant called Wag, uh, Wagamama.
1: Oh, I love Wagamama.
0: You know Wagamama.
1: I do. It's so good.
0: It, it was or still is, I presume, a uh, uh, Asian or oriental chain. of uh, throughout, uh, for, I presume throughout the United Kingdom. But London, there's quite a few uh, Wagamamas. So there's like Wagamama almost next door to the venue where the concert is. So that's where I eat every night.
1: That's delicious. They they open one in Boston actually. I make my mother take me there when I go. Is,
0: is it to American visit? Is, it, is it or is it an English business? No, it's is, English.
1: Is, is it's it? it's English and I think they just happened to expand into Cambridge, Massachusetts of, oh,
0: really interesting. of all places. Yeah, yeah it's good. right. But but it's still very expensive and like
1: Oh yeah, for London it's crazy. And, and,
0: and, and once you know I, I would and sometimes I will get like an individual pizza like pizza express Yes, we,
1: it's Pizza Express in Wagamama. So, I lived in okay. London for a month once and that's what we okay. lived on.
0: So I got, so I get an individual pizza, a, a little side of olives cuz you know I'm kind of flamboyant <laughs> and a glass of one glass of white wine. And I'm a, I'm a total alcoholic. I mean, but you know I stay, I stayed strict one glass of wine by back of the it, And it comes to like 35 or 40 dollars this is for having an individual pizza, one glass of wine and A little side of olives. Oh, yeah. So it's so expensive. And then I had a deal, and the book deals with that a little bit as well, just the financial aspect of it. But it's this, um, but, you know, I have a real strong love and hate for London. I think, I mean, I'm totally obsessed with London, uh, culture. You know, I love, um, um, London. Ever since I was a kid, you know, I, London was always sort of this faraway land that we sort of speak the same language, but with a with a weird accent. And uh, I never lost my love or my uh, fantasies about London. And of course, when I go to London, I've been in London probably like ten times or twelve times in my life. And of course, it's not exactly what what it's in my head. But I never let go. What's in my head? I still think of London that way. So the book. Also deals with subject matter like London in my head, as well as the real London that you know I face like on a daily basis.
1: So this goes and that back. It,
0: it, hmm?
1: huh? No, I was saying huh? it goes back to the same theme of you got to know London better, and it it changed your fantasy. Just like with people yes. and the well, band. Well, I, I would not
0: say it changed. It didn't change my fantasy, but it but it, it, it my interest in London is exactly the same, but I see another reality of. It. London. Actually, I find London very violent. Mm. It's a very violent, you know. I, I just, it's not. It's not like in Derby hats. That's my fantasy. I Men in derby hats with with umbrella canes, you know, <laughs> and walking, driving around Rolls Royces, little thin mustaches. There's Sounds- actually a very sort of violent aspect of London, like especially with the, the soccer hooligans, and oh, uh, yeah. and the drinking is pretty excessive there. It's kind of violent drinking. It's not like um, Fun drink. It's more of a you know, let's drink and get like really loaded before eleven o'clock when the pubs close at the time. So it's, it was a very you know, sort of a um, scary at times. You know, I, I never felt scared in an uh, urban setting. But a couple of times I feel kind of scared walking around London.
1: What were what were the circumstances?
0: Well, it's just like walking in a neighborhood I don't know about, and I see a bunch of like rowdy guys yeah. coming down. And it's like, you know you see rowdy guys everywhere, or gang member, but but somehow that they're drunk, they're like totally like they have this sort of male thing, and it's like eh, eh, you know, and it's like and it's just like they're looking to punch somebody out.
1: It's like a blotto over there.
0: It's yes, really and intense.
1: I'm,
0: and then I think in their viewpoint, I'm very punchable.
1: <laughs> they look at you and they think punchable.
0: Yes, I think so. So I try to stay as far as way uh, far. Away as possible from these people.
1: I I encountered some of them. I actually was there New Year's Eve from for the millennium.
0: Oh yeah, uh-huh. and
1: and talk about a drunk explosion. It was the only time I've ever seen anyone openly take a shit in the street before. Uh huh. Because I think the pubs were closed and they couldn't get to a bathroom, and people were so drunk. And I was like, wow, that's a human over there. Yes. Doing
0: Seriously. that in the street. That, that,
1: that, that, that's horrifying. It was really intense. Um, yeah. So I saw some crazy stuff. Although I still love London. I mean, that isn't something oh, yeah, you see too. on a I, normal basis.
0: Yes. I, I love London as well. And it's a its a—it's um, totally fascinating city. It's an incredible city. I love... I'd rather be in other cities than London, but I still love London. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's got something.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree.
1: So I want to hear about your poetry because that just came out of left field when I was talking to you. I didn't even know about it.
0: Well, I wrote this book of poems in Japan 25 years ago. It's called The Plum in Mr. Blum's Pudding. Mm. Plum in Mr. Blum's Pudding. Nice. And um, it's very interesting to me because it was no, over 25 years. I wrote it in, uh, like, 19... When did I wrote it? 80? 89. 89 mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: And um, it was before the Internet, you know, before, you know, getting things on the computer and stuff.
1: Right. And
0: I was on a very small island. Uh, 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 not an island, excuse me. I was on a big island in Japan in a very remote area, part of Japan. Very tropical. It was, in, uh, it was northern Kishu. In a town called Mojico. Mm-hmm. And it was a, to me, an extremely exotic area of the world. Uh, it was this, like, almost jungle like green and huge insects and huge bugs and centipedes. Centip- and it's so humid. And these centipedes are attracted to your sweat. And, like, oh, they, no. And they, and they can, if they bite you, they can you know, make you go to the hospital. Oh, so, like, it's wow. Right bad. So and then there's like yakuza. It's like sort of a yakuza oh, breathing wow. ground. So like Japanese gangsters are around there as well. So um, there's no. I had no English language around me. Yeah. It's like in the, you know. I, I can get like the NHK, which is like the BBC of uh, of Japanese radio, like uh, state-run radio um, station. And sometimes they would have news uh, subtitled in English or a really bad translation of the news. <laughs> so so whenever I do get the news, like when I was there, like the Berlin Wall fell down, oh, and there was, yeah. a huge, there was a major earthquake in uh, San Francisco at the time. I would get this news like three or four days later when it happened, which seems to me like unbelievable because we get news even before it happens now. Yeah,
1: like, it's just like, this is about to happen, just so yeah, you know.
0: it's gonna happen to me, Yeah, it's going to happen in 10 seconds. But I was totally... I was totally uh, cut off from the world like my world not the Japanese world but my world so I started working I always been I always wrote poetry at the time but nothing really that good but I was really being in a uh, in a world that I couldn't really speak English I was totally restricted in, in this this world in Mojiko, Japan so I started writing uh, a book of, of, of poems and it's um um it um and when i finished the book i actually um found a printer in japan and i printed up copies in japan and i used japanese rice paper it's very elegant oh it's beautifully printed and um and it was an edition of 200 copies i made and uh all gone now and uh peniente press publisher uh, has one had one? I have one of the original copies of the book, and she asked me if it's okay to reprint the book with a new cover, introduction, you know, afterward and stuff like that. And uh, she did so. So that came out about a year and a half ago.
1: That's great. How's it doing?
0: It's it's it's, it's uh, Amazon's number one bestseller.
1: Yes, we're gonna put a link to it so everybody can buy it. Yeah. It yeah, Barnes and amazing. Noble
0: number one, yes. uh, Book Suite, number one, Skylight number one, yeah. Strand Books number one, mm-hmm. number one in Japan of course, number one in uh, Waterstones in London, the Piccadilly Circus number <laughs> one. It's basically number one book.
1: And Foil's books, all of those.
0: Yes, Foil's number one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to read it in that cafe up on top of it where they have really yeah. the mochas. They have the best mochas up there.
0: Well, they move. I heard. I know what? they moved. They they moved from their old store to uh, uh, new York St Martin's the school. Do you remember that on, on mm-hmm. Charlene Crossroad? They sort of moved like a block away. They took over the school. Oh, they, okay, that they could made be the good. Advantage. That could be good. Yeah, I, I haven't been there. I haven't been to the new place.
1: we'll have to go take a look and see what we think if it's acceptable.
0: Of but, course.
1: Yeah, we'll go see your your book showcased. But um. Number one. Number one. I like yes. it. So how did you end up in that part of Japan?
0: Because I married a Japanese woman.
1: Ah. I didn't know if this was before or after meeting Luna.
0: See, uh, after meeting Luna, who's Japanese, uh, when you get married, your whole life changed. Did you get married? Are you getting married?
1: I'm getting married in October, so it's interesting you're bringing this up now.
0: Yeah, Tell me me what I'm in for. where's Where's your future husband from?
1: He's from upstate New York, so it's not quite as Okay,
0: well okay, first remote. of all that's been very important it's very important to ask you. I hope you don't mind me sharing this with with your audience.
1: Oh no, go for it.
0: Do you want to spend your time going to upstate New York for family visits and spend time in that part of the world? Do you like that part of the world?
1: I do. I do. I actually have family there as well.
0: Oh, then you're perfectly fine. Yep. Like I could not marry somebody from I don't wanna I don't wanna insult a part of the country or the world, but Different, there's definitely places I do ever want to go to. Mm-hmm. I would never fall in love with a woman from one of those places, because <laughs> that means you have to make family visits, right? You have to go. You have to visit the, the you have to visit your husband's family, correct? Right.
1: Yeah, I think it's only there.
0: right? So now the smart thing I did, I married a woman from you know was Japanese from, from Japan, and therefore when I visit. My wife's family are home. I have to go to Japan.
1: Yeah, which is pretty awesome.
0: It is awesome, right? Yeah. So, so it's very important, and for anybody listening who's getting married, it's very important to choose a husband or wife, or you know, your mate, whoever, that they come from a place that you want to visit, that you want to go, or even perhaps live eventually. Right. As a, as, a, as, a, as a part of the world that you cannot stand, do not marry that person from that world. That's, you cannot do that.
1: Unless so, they m- hate it too and they never want to go back.
0: You know, they'll end up going back there because there's family reasons not to go back. And you go back there and you make a compromise and you go blah, 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 blah. blah. And then all of a sudden you, <laughs> you move into a duplex there and you're gone. You're dead. Oh, no. Only marry people who come from good locations.
1: It's all about location, right. location, location.
0: Yes, and this, and, and this is advice. This is from a married man. This is advice I'm telling a young, beautiful bride.
1: Well, I mean, you guys are still married. You're doing, you're doing well.
0: Yes, you know why? Because I came from Los Angeles, a fascinating place, and she came from Japan,
1: also a fascinating place.
0: If I live in a weird, you know, I don't want. Again, we don't want to mention names. like You know, right. bad place. But if I you know, imagine the worst place in your brain. Yep. And you think like, from there. Can you imagine Luna actually have to visit there or live there? It would be, t- oh, be horrendous. Always choose a mate that comes from a place of interest. Very important. Nice. That's my advice to your listeners.
1: Okay. I like it.
0: Yeah.
1: We can put it out there. Maybe you'll yeah. write a relationship book next. We've got music. We've got well, poetry. I, we've got noir I, from France. I,
0: I, yeah, I, I could write a relationship book. I could do that. Yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, you've got a press. Yes. You could write it and have it translated kind of into another language. Instead of translating from yes. another language into English, you could go back yes. the other way.
0: I could do that as well, yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, I look at people, I look at their relationships and I, I, I have opinions about their relationship. I you know, I ask I ask poignant questions about why they do certain things, I think I'd be good at this.
1: I think so. Yes.
0: So yes, I will write a relationship book.
1: Excellent. And then when you put it out, we'll have you on the show and we can talk about
0: it. I would hope so. Oh, course. yeah.
1: Absolutely. We will pimp that book out.
0: <laughs> yes. Number one. Number one again. It's always right. number
1: one. Tosh Always Berman. number one, yes. Tosh Berman, number one. That's your... Always.
0: Name. Yes. Correct. You're absolutely correct. <laughs>
1: So yeah. how did you... One thing that I love, and again, talking about the surface of things, is mm-hmm. I love the covers that you did on all the Boris Vian and the other Tam-Tam books. Yes, like yes. Tell me about how you did the covers, because the covers are really good. Again, we'll link to this in the show yeah. notes so those of you listening can see what I'm talking about. But they're really well-designed. Yeah. like You want to pick great... these books up.
0: Um, I have a friend who well, not only is a friend... Because friends can only take you so far before they let you down <laughs> for any reason. It'll be in my relationship book. That I'm writing. Yeah, it'll
1: be a chapter um, on friendship.
0: Ch- yes. Um, <laughs> but a great, great, great guy who's also a, a great composer, music person, Tom Rashawn, did most of my design work. He did probably 90% of the books I put out With designed by Tom Rashawn. Tom Rashawn has done. Uh, is, is, Besides being a great composer, fantastic music person, he was a graphic artist for Warner Brothers for many years and Capitol Records, and he was responsible for doing all the reissues of the Beach Boys albums and stuff like that. So me being a music lover, I really wanted somebody who had a music sense to do the graphics. And, you know, and he, he caught on the essence of the book, uh, Boris Beyond, and I also did books by... or by and about Serge Gainsborough Mm -hmm. and Guy Debord and uh, uh, Jacques Mazin, who's the John Dillinger, the gangster, the ultimate French gangster, his memoir. So so Tom has a great understanding of the subject matter, and he knew how to work it graphically, what that book is. The other graphic person I want to give credit to is uh, Mark Hawley, who uh, did the... um, my Sparks uh, Lyrics book. I did a book of Lyrics of Sparks and also um, the Jacques Mazin book. He did the uh, cover for that as well and he did a a great job as well. And the same thing. Somebody, you you talk to them, you talk to them, you show them the work, you talk about the project. So they get a really clear idea of what it is and then they do their magic and they both do their magic quite well. So thank you for picking it up.
1: Oh no, I just, I love looking at it. I have it on my shelf. Great. I think this is a good looking book. You know, some of them you're like, I'm going to read this. I know it's going to be good, but, you know, I might give it away because it's not that pretty. Like this one, I was like, I'm keeping this book. Somebody else is going to have to buy it if they want to read it because it's good looking and it's staying with me.
0: To be honest with you, if I can be honest with you, Mm. I would like to be, I would love to be on your bookshelf.
1: (laughs) I don't know if you would at the moment because it's very crowded.
0: Not my books, mind you, but me personally on your no. Shelf. I
1: know, I know what you're saying, and I'm telling you, it's like a hoarder's paradise in here with the books. You know how
0: tall us hope, are. I, I hope your future husband will be okay with that.
1: No, he's a book hoarder, also. It's it's a disaster. No, or but like I, no, no, no. Or you no, on no. the bookshelf?
0: Yes, 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 yes.
1: I don't know. I think he'd enjoy it. I mean, he's really into design as well. So. Oh. Okay. I mean, y'all could talk about that. Excellent. I think it might go pretty well.
0: Okay, well, I'll I'll make sure I'm dressed well when I'm on your full stuff. I think
1: you should wear a smoking jacket.
0: Is that what I'm wearing right now?
1: (laughs) A smoking jacket and. uh... I'm
0: wearing silk pajamas and a smoking jacket.
1: Perfect. And then some of those Belgian loafers. Of course. Yeah, just like you do.
0: Not wearing socks.
1: No, no, no.
0: No. Nobody does that. that. No, absolutely correct.
1: Although I have been, been trying to talk him into the fact that he does have to wear socks for the wedding. He's trying to get out of it.
0: You know, don't pressure him. <laughs> I mean, you can you have, have a
1: chapter about not pressuring people to wear socks yes. in the book.
0: Yes. Let him wear what he feels comfortable.
1: Okay. Well, he'll inter- it, he's the sound editor on the show, so I'm sure he'll be very pleased to hear all of this as, it, he, uh, because, as he because Because the it. wedding.
0: Because the wedding is for the both of you.
1: No, it's true.
0: So if he doesn't want to wear socks, don't make him wear socks.
1: Yeah, but I'm not wearing something crazy either. I'm not like wearing leg warmers or something at the wedding. I think that would probably not go over well.
0: Well, you know if you want to wear, it, if you have a desire to wear it, you, I feel think you should yeah. that's all.
1: Well, it's convenient that I don't want to wear them for this particular occasion. sometimes I do
0: if if that if that is what you want, then I'm all for it. okay. I'm totally behind you. I got your back on this. So <laughs> Thanks,
1: Tosh. Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell Barry that, you know, you don't think he should have to be required to wear socks.
0: I don't think, well, yeah, it's up to you. I shouldn't get involved in your, in your, your relationship this way. But...
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see how he feels. I mean, okay. he might feel an incredible sense of relief to hear that someone wants this, or he might have just, sometimes he'll bring things up, you know, just because he wants to kind of see if he can get me riled up about it. So this could yes. be one of those. He could be deliberately taunting me with the sock
0: thing. Yes, that's going to be chapter uh, eleven on my book about relationships: the taunting of the, of the other.
1: <laughs> yes, taunting. I think has to be. It has to be in there. Yes. Yeah.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to call the book "Taunt Me Not."
1: <laughs> Taunt me not by Tosh Berman. Yeah, I think that taunting is really a topic that is not covered. In, uh, in relationship books today. I don't see it covered.
0: Yeah, you're correct. It really needs to be covered.
1: It's sort of like, they're not that into you. Are they that into you? Here's how to make them into you. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Tips of various kinds, but there's nothing about, and then there's about like enabling and codependency, but really nothing about taunting.
0: Yes. My, again, can I make another suggestion? No, oh, please. When you sit down to have dinner, hmm Or when you post sit down in a room, sit on his lap, always.
1: <laughs> that really, no matter where?
0: Yeah, just get rid of the other chair. Never have the other chair. Just make sure he sits there and you sit on his lap.
1: Okay. Interesting. I- I'm sure he'd be for it.
0: I can't see why he would object to that at all.
1: It might be odd if there was, like, family present.
0: Well, they have to stand.
1: Oh, they have to sit, because there's only one chair. It's like that yeah. uh, Flight of the Concord song.
0: Do you remember that one,
1: when he says, you know, yeah. you, you run out of money, you sold your chair, so you don't have anywhere to sit, so you, you just stand yeah. there.
0: Yes. It's a great show. Oh. I, I think about them often.
1: I love them so much.
0: I have work meetings where I go to, and it's basically, do you remember, the, I mean, people I don't see the show, they always... The manager always has a business meeting with them. Uh huh. Like in their office, and it's always like just three of them. Yeah. And they they do a roll call.
1: Right, right.
0: (laughs) Present, present.
1: Yeah, because it's like you can't see everybody, you know, you gotta do the roll call. That guy is great. The manager is amazing. He's got that poster of New Zealand on the wall. It's so good.
0: Yes. I love that show. Great show.
1: It's so good. We should do a book about that. No. No?
0: No. You, you did that book, not me. I'm doing okay. a relationship book.
1: You're doing the... Re- yeah, you're already on a project. We can't put yeah. you on... <laughs> tell you you only do one project at a time? Is that just like...
0: Well, let me tell you. Okay, let me, I'll tell you what I've been doing. Yeah. Uh, in the year 2014, on, on December 31st, New Year's Eve, 2013, mm-hmm. I was drinking, I was feeling kind of... Like, Kind of like depressed because like New Year's Eve, but, but I was at a party, wonderful party, wonderful people. But I was feeling like I feel this way always on New Year's Eve. I'm not a I'm not a New Year's Eve person. No,
1: New Year's Eve is rough.
0: It's it is rough. So but I, like the Sparks book, like being you know it wasn't like a, uh-huh. a, a like a great deal of time. It was like an instant, like bam, I got it. Yeah. And I and I was there drinking and I thought bam, I got a bam thing. And the bam thing was every day. Starting tomorrow morning, January 1st, I will write an essay, a narrative, and post it on my blog and Facebook every day by 11 o'clock in the morning. In my right. time. Specific. And I did that every day, 365 pieces from January 1st, 2014 to December 31st, 2014. So I've written over 200,000 words.
1: Oh on my this God. particular
0: work. It's, it's mega huge. That's amazing. And it's illustrated as well.
1: Did you illustrate it?
0: Well, I found images off the internet and stuff I photographed. Uh, de- okay. cause it, it, it deals with individuals, people, famous, non famous people. It's uh, non fiction with little fiction thrown in, or fiction with non fiction thrown in, or some of it's straight ahead like critical essays. So, uh, you know, I wake up again, I, I like a schedule thing. You know, I wake up in the morning, I start writing. I have my cup of coffee, orange juice, whatever, and I just work till 11 o'clock. And by 11, I'm finished with that project. And then I post it. And I don't think about it. And then the next morning, I start again. I don't think about what I'm doing the night before. I just do it. It's all about doing it the moment, the time. Just doing it. So then I did that. Then I did a thing, like for 2015, I did a thing called the Sunday series. Where every Sunday on that day, I would write something, and then I would post it on Facebook, and I would post it on my blog. So now I have the 365 series, uh, 2014, and then I have the 2015, the Sunday series.
1: So what are you doing this year?
0: Well, this year I'm not doing like every evening, but I'm doing something called the Evening Series. I mm. did three, I did three pieces, and it's pieces that are actually written in real time at nighttime, and I put it, I and I post it like at nighttime. That's so awesome. It, so it's like a different mood and it's different, you know, different type of writing. And it's, um, um, but the format, you know, it's the same format. Like I do maybe like 600 to 1,000 words for each piece um, and with illustrations. And I post it. And it's, it's very liberating because it's not, I don't have to think about it. You know, I just do it. And I love that, you know. And I also wrote a book, a memoir called Beat Boy. Hmm. Beat, Mm beat boy, Uh, and it's it's a childhood memoir about me, you know, living in the in the sort of the beat or beatnik world with my parents, uh, in the fifties and sixties, and about uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles and Topanga Canyon in the seventies, and and it's um, so I finished that. Trying to find a publisher. I think I found a publisher. Can't really talk about it right now because it's, you know, as they say in Hollywood, it's everybody's talking, you know, we're right. chatting about it.
1: Your people are calling millions their of, people.
0: Millions of dollars being, being brought up, zillions, gazillions of dollars, and, you know, it's boring, 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 boring. <laughs> but nevertheless, I did finish a, uh, you know, like, I, I worked on this book for like 10 years. Oh, wow. And so it's, you know, it's 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 finished as far as I'm concerned. But of course, this is a process. You know, once you once you get a publisher, then you go for the editors and you know and all that type of thing. So that's like a whole another procedure. You know, process. It's very fascinating. And actually, I'm looking forward to that point because I like working with people. So I like the idea of um, bringing like a manuscript to somebody, and then somebody else tearing into it and like rearranging it and all that mm-hmm. type of stuff. I I like that actually.
1: Yeah. I love- it's a uh, yeah. That's a totally different process. I think. than there's the part where it you're is. writing it, and then the part where it's being edited and changed into something else. That's completely different. Yes,
0: yes. I love that. I'm that's really looking. Great. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really, I'm right now really, really looking forward to getting to that frame of mind. Does that? I'm, I'm, so, so. How does yeah. that
1: change things for you when you're in that point?
0: Well, you know, it's just. You know, you're writing, writing, writing. Like every day, you're writing. And I've been writing. All, I mean, I took this manuscript everywhere. I mean, from London, Paris, Tokyo, Kishu, Los Angeles, you know, Las Vegas. I mean, everywhere I went, I took, I just worked. I'm not a vacation person. I all that, <laughs> I I do travel, but I don't ever travel for vacation. It's all like cause I have to be in that part of the world for some reason. And um, and I really enjoy. You know, writing to me is, is my vacation, right? I love, to, I love just being in front of a keyboard and seeing a blank piece of blankness in front of you and putting words on that blankness and get your mind working, and, and I love that part. And that's why I love the 365 series as well as the, um, the Sunday series because it was just, like, really kind of raw writing, you know? I wasn't even critical. I don't care if people like it, to tell you the truth. But I just like doing it. and like putting it out. You know, that's a pleasure. You know, the, the, the people liking or not liking your book, it's always great when somebody likes your work, of course. But the, the real pleasure is actually doing the work itself and making the book and talking to the editor. And that's like really, then you see the final product. And it's kind of, you know, it's great. It's like a great moment. Afterwards, it's just, then the reader, people, critics do their job. You know, I did my job. They can do their job when they want. Right. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finished at that point. So it's like it's it's, it's out in the world. Hopefully it's out in the world. And that's and that's it. So it's it's, it's very enjoyable. Yeah. In that, that sense.
1: I think this is really, um, I think it's really great to hear all the different ways that you've worked. Because a lot of people listening, some of them are my coaching clients. And a lot of them want to write. But it's this whole, how do I get into a routine? Or how do I find time, or how do I make time, or what should I be working on, or how many pieces you at got, once.
0: Should I give advice to yes, you? Yes, do it. Okay, okay. if you're really serious about writing, you have to make the time, even if you have to quit your job. Quit your job. When you quit your job, there's a financial thing where you're like, oh shit, i got to prove something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then tell everybody you're writing a book. Tell everybody you know you're writing a book. Because if you don't finish that book or that writing, everybody's going to look really bad at you. Because right. you quit your job and you're a total failure. Total failure. You tried. You failed. Misery. The bottom. Bing. You're falling in air. You can hit, you can hit yourself hitting the ground. Boom. So, like, so so. with that mentality, now you've got, you know, you got your computer open or your notebook. You got an empty page. You have to do something, or you're just in total embarrassment to yourself into the world. As well as making this financial thing, where you totally quit your job, right? To do this project. So, so that will inspire you alone. The, the fear will, will actually get you going. Uh, but the thing is, you do have to set time. Okay, even if you do work, you don't want to give up your day job or your night job. You have to set a certain amount of time. It could be one hour, two hours, six hours. It's not the length of the time important. It's just Setting the time is more important. Ten minutes a day. long well, as you do something or work on it for ten minutes a day, fine. You know, the length is not important. It's like what you can do in that ten, you know, that ten minutes. And you you just have to stay with it. it. It is a job. You have to sit there and just stay with it till something comes. You can listen to music. You can dance. You can do some weird sexual stuff you want to. Whatever you want to do is perfectly fine. But you have to stay behind your keyboard to, you know, hopefully produce something. And it will come. I don't really believe in writer's block. And I know I don't believe in writer's block because I did 365 pieces every day, post something up by 11 o'clock in the morning. Right. Now, is it good or bad? That's really up to other, you know, that's up to other people. But as a writer, I did my job. I produced something. Right? So, so I think that doing like a strict deadline, deadline's really helpful too. Like you just say, Geez, you know, by the end of 10 minutes, I'm going to produce something, or by the hour, or you know, by five o'clock tonight, today, this afternoon, I'm going to produce something. And you just stick with it, and you just stay there, and just look at that blank screen. Something will come up for anybody. The hard part is really the discipline of doing it. The writing is not that difficult. The hard part is really getting started and just sitting there and just doing doing, it, just being there, you know, like being at work. It's like solitary confinement, too. It's very, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's very hard. You could do it in a cafe if you want You can do it in a public library. I've done all writing everywhere. It's all perfectly fine, whatever works for you. And you can change. You don't have to be strict about it. But what you have to be very strict about is spending a certain amount of time on your work. That is very, very important.
1: I agree. I think one thing, as you were talking earlier about going on to the editing mode and that you're excited about that sometimes i think that what writer's block is is trying to be in writing mode and editing mode simultaneously it's like you're trying to decide if it's good and make it better before you've even written it so you just freeze
0: yeah you can't you don't freeze don't edit write first edit later you have you have plenty of time to edit plenty of time to to tell you how terrible it is You know, I'm getting bad advice and good advice and that whole procedure that you have to go through. First thing first, just get it down on paper. That's all you need to do at this point. You do editing. I mean, you edit all the time. You think, like, is this the right word? Is this the right sentence? You work on that sentence for a long time. So that's like editing is writing. You know, it's like you're you're still working on it. But don't let that stop you from the writing part of it. You know, don't self-censor yourself or say that's stupid. Just do it it's stupid. You get rid of it later. That's all. No, no, no problem. You know, but the, but the hard part really is, is um, staying behind your computer screen or your laptop and just work or pen and pencil, however you write, and sticking with it. You know, for us that's, that amount of time, it's very that, that is very hard. I mean, it can be very difficult. So many people have a very short attention span these days. Yeah. I don't. I'm very fortunate I do not have that short attention span. You know, you can go on the Internet, but the Internet's for that. You can go on the Internet, Facebook, blah, blah, blah. You know, you, get, you get play around and go back to your work, you know, every five minutes. Go back to your work and, and think about that. You can cheat, but just stay behind your laptop for like six hours, five hours, one hour, ten minutes. And just be committed to you know, do work in that, t- in that time frame.
1: I think that works. Thank you so much. It does work.
0: It worked for me because I am now number one.
1: (laughs) uh, International international number one phenomenon.
0: Your readers and your fans may never heard of me because I chose not to be famous.
1: That's okay. I don't think anybody, I don't know. I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but I, I think part of the appeal of being a writer is that you don't have to be visually famous. I don't want anyone recognizing me in the street.
0: No, no, the fame thing is totally, uh, um, um, it's kind of wrong. I mean, so, I mean fame is, is, a, is a false thing to follow. It's not, it's, not, it's not a right thing to do. The best thing to do is do the best work you can do as a writer. Let's talk this specifically about writing. Uh, and do the best you can do as a writer and just deal with the material you're working on, but what you're trying to present to the world. Show and tell, same thing. Yeah. Writing is show and tell to me. I want to present something. I'm showing you something. And I'm showing you something to you specifically, the reader. And that is basically the same instinct when I bring an object to a classroom or kindergarten or first grade or I publish or, you know, doing the buying books for a bookstore. It's same, exactly the same thing. Show and tell. That's all it is. Show and tell.
1: So pick what you want to show and then tell everybody about it.
0: That's, that's all it is. And that's if you're writing, that's what you do. You want to show something. Obviously, that's why you write. You want to show pain, love, glory, arrows, eroticism, political stuff, whatever it is you want to show, that's why you do it. And now you want to tell it. The show part is easy. You know what you want. Well, I mean, you should. the point. You know, If you know what you want to show, all you have to do now is tell it. It's very simple.
1: I love it. Thank you so much for coming on, Tosh. This has been really great, and I know it will be inspiring to so many people who are listening
0: i can't tell you how much i always want to be invited to is that your bedroom by the way
1: (laughs) i am actually i'm in the office
0: this is your office It's a very nice office Uh, listeners she can't see me but i can see her
1: yeah nobody can see either of us so they can't they can't see my my towel turban on my head that i'm wearing
0: and again, I want to tell the audience, your listeners, that you're very, very attractive, and it's a very nice thing to see on my nice computer screen. So thank you for that.
1: You are so welcome. I appreciate it. I'm I'm pleased that it's not a disaster on this very hot day.
0: Not a disaster at all.
1: <laughs> well, we'll have you again uh, when you get the relationship book out, or whenever you have something new coming.
0: I forgot the title already. Taunt no more. No taunt.
1: Taunt, taunt no more.
0: Taunt no more. That's it. Taunt more no more.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Forthcoming. Is that a good title? Forthcoming from Tam Tam Press.
0: Not for no, I'm gonna get another no. publish.
1: Different one? Okay.
0: Yeah, when I write I, I use another publisher.
1: Okay. Will you just give me all the details and we will we will put it up.
0: Okay, I will.
1: <laughs> Thank you and we will talk to you again.
0: Thank you for having me here. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.